morning we'll be looking at Daniel chapter 10. We are truly in the home stretch of this book. This is the last section, chapters 10, 11, and 12. Chapter 10 is a bit, in one fashion, of an introduction to this remainder of the book. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, sufficient word. Hear now the word of the Lord in Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the twenty-fourth day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz round his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you. And stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is four days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute, and behold... One in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. 
And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to see you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, O Lord, this morning that you would show us your majesty, that you would show us your greatness, your mercy and your truth. We ask, O Lord, that you would show us your wisdom. You would show us the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. There was a man who looked out over a battlefield and was afraid. Surely this was the end. We're in the corner of all corners. There's nowhere to go. After all, it's just me, and I don't even really know how to use a sword. And this prophet of God. And out there, thousands and thousands and thousands of enemy soldiers ready to destroy us, to destroy our kingdom. What can we possibly do? What hope can we possibly have? These were perhaps the thoughts of a man by the name of Gehazi in 2 Kings chapter 6. As he looked out and saw how magnificent and how grand the Assyrian army was. And how small and pitiful Israel was. How could they possibly survive? What political trick could they bring? What secret attack could they rely upon? And when he turned to the prophet, the prophet said to him, why are you so concerned? And Gehazi looked at him like perhaps he hadn't gotten enough sleep the night before. What do you mean, why am I concerned? Look out there, it's so obvious the way the world is. The prophet said to him, you're not looking very closely. You're only seeing what's right in front of you. And he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord pulled back the veil, pulled back the curtain that separates this physical world from the very real spiritual world. And Gehazi saw legion upon legion of angels prepared to fight and to destroy God's enemies. Gehazi got that kind of glimpse of the reality of the world behind our world. Daniel gets that glimpse here in Daniel 10. And in a day and age in which we concern, we are concerned, we worry, we fret about deficits and terrorists and attacks on our faith and instability in the world, we need to have that veil, that curtain pushed aside so that we can see what the real world is like. We can see what real history is like. We can gain great comfort from this. And we will, by God's grace this morning, in Daniel chapter 10. 
What I would like us to see this morning as we think about God, who is really the God of history, He is involved in history, is to see first the context of history. The context in which God acts right here in Daniel 10. And then we will see the conflict of history. And it may be a bit different than what we imagine that conflict to be. And then finally, after having looked at the context and the conflict of history, we will see the great champion of history, the Lord God himself. Well, let's look then beginning here at verse 1 of chapter 10, and see the context of history. We think about first Daniel's situation. Daniel is, in a very real sense, just like you and me. And as you come here to hear the Word of God preached to you this morning, you come in a context. If your children misbehave this morning, or your pipes burst, or you're a little under the weather, or your job is perhaps not as secure as it should be, you bring that to the hearing of the Word of God. And so it's important to understand Daniel's context because it gives us insight into the way in which the Lord speaks. So Daniel's situation here begins in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. This is the fourth vision that Daniel has had. He's had two in the reign of King Belshazzar in his first year and his third year in chapter 7 and chapter 8. And then he's had now his second in the reign of King Cyrus or Darius in his first year and his third year. And this word is revealed to him and it is revealed to him in a context of history. You may recall, if you know your history, or if you remember when Mr. Hare taught his Sunday school class on Ezra and Nehemiah, that in the very first year of King Cyrus, a decree went forth that Israel was to be permitted to return to the land and rebuild the temple. This was the culmination of all that Daniel had hoped and prayed for. It is the very answer to his heartfelt prayer in Daniel chapter 9. Israel could finally go back. They could finally be a people. They could finally not be under a foreign government. They could finally worship as they were intended to worship and long to worship. This would be something that Daniel would have longed to see all the years of his life, some 80-odd years. But something interesting happened in the midst of that return. We know as we look in the book of Ezra, one of those passages in the Bible that make our eyes glaze over as we read name upon name and name upon name and name upon name and 52 people from this family and 48 people from this family. We know from that that only 42,000 Israelites returned. Think about that. Hundreds of thousands of Israelites cast into exile under a foreign government, not able to worship the Lord. And when they are finally ordered by a pagan king to go back and set up the worship of the living God, they say, no, I got plans. No, you know, I really like the way I've decorated this kitchen. I really don't want to leave Babylon. But you know, my kids are in a good high school and... You know, I really don't want, I don't need that call of God on my life right now. Only 42,000 returned. And you also know that of those 42,000 that returned, they didn't just go in and lickety-split build a temple. No. They had to be chastised. 
They had to be commanded. They had to be prodded just to lay the foundation. And as soon as they had done that, they came under attack from the people in the land, a people that we know as the Samaritans, those who had mixed together the worship of the living God and pagan gods. And they came under attack from other Persian officials so that by the third year of the reign of King Cyrus, when Cyrus was on vacation, literally, off touring the empire, his son, Cambyses, said, you know what? No more temple. I rescind the decree. So much for the laws of the Medes and the Persians. So we can see here that Daniel would be confronted by this. He would be concerned about this. We think about Daniel's personal situation. Do you think it's odd that Daniel is by the river Tigris? That 42,000 have returned and Daniel is not one of them? Why is this? Well, it could be, the simple answer could be his health. He might not have been able to make the journey, might not have wanted to be a burden. He's probably very likely in his late 80s now. Late 80s is very old in the ancient Near East when life expectancy was probably somewhere between the 40s and 50s. So he might not have wanted to be a burden. He might not have wanted to usurp the place of God's given new leaders, Ezra and Nehemiah. You know, the people might not have listened to them as readily. They might have turned to Daniel. So he might have wanted to fade out of the picture. In the same way that, as is often the case, when a minister retires, he doesn't continue to worship in that congregation. He moves on so that people can look to the new leader. But there could be something else that is involved here in what we see Daniel doing. And that is, Daniel could have been given a calling by God not to go and move bricks and mortar, but to pray mighty prayers. After all, that was the thing that marked Daniel's life more than anything else. He was a praying man. This is his situation, both in terms of the exile and personally. The time in which this is happening is the first month, and this is not an insignificant detail. Daniel is fasting, mourning, and not using anointing during the Passover season. This is the holiday of the Jewish year. This is a time for celebration and wine and breaking out the best of meat. This would be like dressing in drab browns, putting your head down, mumbling, and refusing to eat anything sweet around Christmas. It just doesn't happen. We all wear bright reds and greens. We wear festive colors. We gain 10 pounds because everyone shoves a cookie in front of us. We have delicacies. But you see, Daniel is so affected by what's going on that he does not do this. Because you see, it's not just Daniel's situation that we see here in the context. We also see his preoccupation. You see, Daniel is very preoccupied. He is preoccupied first with the people of God. He is in mourning. He's not thinking about himself and the Passover or the excitement that he would have or the good things that could be given to him in a land of wealth. No, he is in mourning because finally God has called his people back and none of them want to go. Have you ever felt like that when you are excited about the scriptures and you look around and you see other people that claim to be Christians and they go to church and there's no excitement for the word of God? And you think, 
What are you doing? Do you ever think about that when you desire to raise your children or to build up your marriage in a certain way and you're speaking with someone who claims to be a Christian and they give you advice that you could get on the Dr. Phil show? You wonder, what are they thinking? That's what Daniel's thinking here. He's in mourning. He says, why would the people of God not want to return? Listen here for us. There's a warning You remember that as we started looking at the book of Daniel, I said one of the things about the book of Daniel is that it's a description of the psalm in which we hear the question, how can I sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And we said that Daniel was a man who shows us how to do this. The problem that comes up is if we are not willing to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, soon enough we're not willing to sing it in God's land. We've given it up entirely. If we are not committed to our faith when times are difficult, if we are not committed to the Lord Jesus Christ as the source of all our hope and good when we face challenges, we will not return to it. This is the problem faced by Daniel in the midst of the people of Israel. His focus, his preoccupation is upon them, but it is also upon God himself. You see, that's what fasting does. Fasting focuses us upon God. It's not something that we are all required to do in the Scriptures, but it is something that is amplified in the Scriptures. And it is perhaps the Christian discipline that is most lost today. As bad as Bible reading habits are, as bad as prayer is in the church at large, fasting is almost unheard of. Because we don't, want to take the time to be focused upon God. We have so many things to do. There's so much to see on television. There's so many sporting events to go to. There's so many ministry activities to do. There's so many things about life that we become too busy for God. But not Daniel. He focuses, he fasts, and he prays because he is a man of prayer beyond everything. And this also is an encouragement to us that we should not become discouraged in prayer in the midst of what might be the most devastating thing to ever happen to Daniel. You can almost imagine in your sanctified imagination him saying, you know, I expected to be thrown into the lion's den by pagan political connivers. But I didn't expect God's people to abandon God, to abandon freedom, to abandon worship. But you see... By praying, he becomes encouraged. He's focused upon God. There's a lesson here even for the smallest among us. You know, we don't know everything that's going on in the world, do we? We can't imagine everything that we need to pray for. But one thing we can do, one thing you can do, even kids today, is you can take your bulletin and you can look on the side and see our missionaries. And you can pick one. And you can pray for him. You can pray for her every day this week. You can focus upon God and pray for that missionary. God will hear that prayer. That is a significant prayer. This is the context in which we see God acting. The context of history. There is a political upheaval again. Israel has been in exile. They have hoped to return, and now they've returned, and now they're facing challenges and difficulties. 
We wonder what kind of government they will set up. We wonder what the armies will do. We wonder what treaties will come up. Our focus here is tempted to be upon the kingdoms that we can see. Persia, Greece, Babylon, Israel, Egypt. But you see, that's not where God wants our focus. Because you see, the real focus, the real conflict is not between Persia and Israel, or Persia and Babylon, or Greece and Persia, or Rome. No, the real conflict is a spiritual conflict. You see, this conflict, first of all, is not what we think. This conflict is not what we think. The events of history cannot be interpreted just by what we see. And if we are honest with ourselves, we are tempted to that same error. We look out over the landscape and we think less about missionary work in China and more about terrorism and training camps for terrorists in Yemen. We think that's more significant. We think less about the burgeoning church in Africa and its stands against immorality and against Western immorality in specifically, refusing to take money that comes tainted with sin. And instead we think more about who the next premier of Egypt will be. Or if the president of Turkey will be from this party or that party. Or whether we will pick up 30 seats for our party or 20 seats for our party in Congress, or whether our government will be able to put the regulations forward that we would like. No, you see, history and its conflict is not what we think. There are human players. I'm not here this morning to tell you that terrorists aren't real. I'm not here to tell you that there aren't those who actively hate the church and would love to see it destroyed with bullets and bombs. But what I am here to tell you is these are not the only participants. You see, Cambyses, the son of Cyrus, was king of Persia. And he did attack Israel. And he did pass a law that hurt them. But he was not the real root of the problem. You see, the root of the problem we see here this morning is not the emperor of Persia or the king of Persia, but rather the prince of Persia. It's a spiritual battle. It is a battle between angels and demons, God and the devil, light and darkness, belief and unbelief. This is the real conflict of history. You see, when it comes to thinking about spiritual warfare, the devil has two tricks up his sleeve. Trick number one is to make you think that He is completely in control. That somehow the real world is like the movie The Exorcist. Scary, and no one can stop what's going on, and the devil is in control, and you can never get anything out of his hands. And we are frightened, and we go into a corner and shiver. But he has another trick, too. The other trick is to make you believe that he doesn't exist at all. And there's no such thing as a real devil. Every educated person knows that. There's no such thing as spiritual warfare. No. Everything has a logical explanation, rational, physical explanation. You see, the devil would be happy if you believed either of those things. What C.S. Lewis called the sorcerer or the scientist. One who believes that Satan is all-powerful or doesn't exist. 
But you see, the reality is that Satan does exist. That demons do exist. That there is a spiritual battle, but that God is in control and that God triumphs. He fights that battle for us. And you see, God wants Daniel to understand this is the case. And so he sends to Daniel to make known exactly what this spiritual battle is, that the real conflict is spiritual. Now, there's something else that we need to understand about this kind of conflict, that it's not what we think. Oftentimes, if we understand that there is a spiritual battle, we think that the spiritual battle and spiritual world is a mirror for what's happening here on earth. And so, for example, we assume that if the United States is winning the war on terror, God must be winning the spiritual battle. And if somehow the United States starts losing the war on terror, God must be losing the war in spiritual places. But this is not the case. It is not a perfect mirror image. What happens in the spiritual realms is not dependent upon what happens here. You see, it's not what we think it is. This battle is very real. It's also, if we're honest with ourselves, not what we want. We would much rather have something that we could control, a conflict we could get our arms around. Even if it is expansive and complex and difficult, we could simply read more newspapers to understand it. We could study more books. We could recruit more soldiers. We could raise more money. But you see, that's not the nature of this battle. The central point of the conflict is not the world. Why was Israel under attack? Was it because the Samaritans were opposing them? Was it because some in the Persian high circle were trying to use them for political advantage? Was it because the culture there wasn't ready for their reintroduction into the Holy Land? I don't think so. I think it was this. Verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the king of Persia. You see, the reason the Samaritans attacked Israel is because the prince of Persia roused them up to it. The reason that the king of Persia who had let them go back by decree was off the scene and replaced by a wicked son is because the devils were stirring them up to do this. They were using kingdoms, using pagans to attack the people of God. Have you ever wondered why you come across opposition when you attempt to share the gospel with someone? I mean, let's be honest, that's probably one of the scariest things for anyone to do. Kid, adult, grandma, grandpa. To walk up to someone and share the gospel in a true biblical way. To say that there's no other way to heaven but by Jesus. And I don't mean to be arrogant about that, but that's just the truth of God's word. And someone says to you, well, that's interesting, but I'm tired. Or, you know, I read some other things and, and I don't believe that's true. I don't have time for this now. Do you really think the opposition there is just that someone's tired or doesn't have enough time or that you haven't got a silver tongue? It's not. 
Paul tells us that the reason that people do not believe the gospel is because their eyes have been blinded. Satan does not want them to believe. It is a spiritual battle. And it requires the work of God to rip aside the blinders, to give a new heart, to open up the mind. It requires a spiritual victory that only God can provide. It's not easy for us. It's not what we want, not only because the conflict is in a place where we don't want it. We have to be involved. You see, every believer is involved in the battle. We would like sometimes, I think, to stand on the side and to cheer our side on to victory. You know, occasionally I do that when we have fellowship events. We'll play some card game or have a trivia game. And, and I won't take part. I'll walk around and talk at the different tables. I'm not involved in the game. I'm, I'm doing other things. And that's okay when it's a game. But when it's life, we can't take that kind of a stand as Christians. We can't stand on the sidelines. We must be in the battle because we are in the battle. It is not optional. Paul doesn't say, you know, if you're a real go-getter, put on the armor of God. He says, no, you have to put on the armor of God or you'll come under attack. You'll come under attack from the devil. His fiery darts will get you. So put up the shield of faith. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Pick up the sword of truth and yell charge and get in. Are you in the battle today? Is Christ church in the battle today? Do we desire to see a world changed spiritually by the power of God, the work of the Holy Spirit? Then we must be in the battle because this battle is an epic one. When the curtain is pulled aside, Abraham Kuyper, you couldn't get more worldly involved than Abraham Kuyper. He was a Christian that was the prime minister of Holland. He was basically the president of Holland. And he said, when you pull aside the curtain of what is going on in the world today and see the real battle, you will see that what is going on in the world is completely insignificant by comparison. The spiritual battle is the real substantive battle. This conflict is about more than Daniel. It is a battle of epic proportions. It's the kind of battle you see in films that were made 30 and 40 years ago that were no less than three hours. Films like El Cid, where they bring in thousands and thousands of extras, and they pan back and you see this gigantic battle. That's what's involved. It's not what we think. It's not what we want. But praise the Lord, this conflict is also not what we fear. Do you notice something that runs through here with Daniel? It's a fear. He's afraid of what's going on. He's afraid to face this messenger, this man. Look at verse 17. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Look here at verse 9. As I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Look at verse 15. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. When confronted with 
the holiness, the sovereignty, the majesty of God, true believers do not look and say, hey, big guy, it's blasphemous. You know, John MacArthur has a story when someone said to him that God came to him all the time and talked to him. You know, when he was shaving, God would come and talk to him. And John MacArthur said, I only have one question. If that happens, do you stop shaving? You see, we've come to a place where we are glib with God. He's the big guy upstairs. He's a friendly old grandfather. He's someone who exists for our pleasure. He's someone who we long to see so we can make lovey-dovey eyes to him. When in reality, whenever anyone is faced with the presence of the holy, omnipotent God, they fall down on their face like dead. It's what Ezekiel did in Ezekiel chapter 1. It's what John did in Revelation 1. We fall down as dead. But the wonder of God is, even though that is our reaction to the living God, because He is so much greater than we are, mercy and grace flow from the Lord Jesus Christ to us. Because you see, after Daniel says, I've fallen on my face in verse 9, in verse 10 a hand touches him and sets him trembling on his hands and knees. Now think about that. Daniel is flat on his face and God stoops down to pick Daniel up so that he's at least on his hands and knees. God makes that connection. God comes to us. We do not go to God. This is what God does for Daniel's fear. Look again here in verse 15. After he had turned his face toward the ground and was mute, His lips were touched. Again, mercy and grace. And then in verse 17, when he says, I have no breath yet to breathe, he is touched and strengthened. God is full of mercy and grace. He's full of mercy and grace, not just for Daniel, but for you too, beloved. If you feel overawed by the power of God and the majesty of God and His holiness in light of your sin, know that God has mercy and grace for you. And you should be floored by the the humongous nature of your sin. But God is there to pick you up, to strengthen you, to give you words. He reminds Daniel, not once, but twice that he is greatly loved. And then he only desires peace for Daniel. What a merciful and gracious God we have. But if this is the case, if there's such a conflict in front of us and we feel so weak and so helpless, how can we possibly be comforted? How can we possibly be equipped for such a battle? You can say... I don't know the spiritual equivalent of Kung Fu. I don't know how to wield a sword. I know the sword is the word of God, but I don't have it all memorized. I don't have fancy moves. How do I fight this spiritual fight? The answer comes in relying not upon ourselves and our weakness, but upon the champion of history, God himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone comes here and meets with Daniel in chapter 10. 
And the obvious question is, who is it? The one thing we know is it's not Michael, because Michael is named elsewhere. Michael has come to help this person. Michael has come to be involved in the battle. But there's also a problem in that the person who is involved here in verses 5 through 8 appears different in quality from the one who appears in verses 10 and on. Why do I say that? Because look at what happens here in verse 5. It is a man clothed in fine linen, and his body was like beryl, like a radiant jewel. Beryl is one of the firmest, most unbreakable, brilliant jewels of that era. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and legs like bronze. And as soon as you start hearing this, if you're a student of the Scriptures, you start thinking of the description where? In Revelation chapter 1. There's a very similar description in a a book that gets read a bit less than Revelation because it's, quite frankly, almost as confusing as Daniel and it's longer. The book of Ezekiel in which God himself in Ezekiel 1 is described in almost the same fashion. Now, who is this? Daniel retains no strength. He falls down on his face before this person in a deep sleep. I think this is no less than a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of God. You remember, angel means messenger. It doesn't mean powerful being with wings. It means messenger. And it applies to the Lord Jesus as well, especially in his pre-incarnate state. That's why he's called the messenger or the angel of the covenant. You see, if this were Gabriel, Daniel's response would be, in a sense, inappropriate. He's already met Gabriel. He knows who Gabriel is from chapter 9. But this being, he doesn't know, and he is floored literally by him. Why is this important to think about? Because in the midst of the most discouraging, depressing, horrible thing to happen to Daniel in his 80 plus years, worse than being thrown in the lion's den, worse than seeing his friends thrown in the fiery furnace, worse than facing death, is to see the discouragement of the people of God not desiring to worship God. And that is when Jesus appears. That is when Jesus comes alongside Daniel. And in the same way, when you are in the dark, depth, night of your soul, that is when Jesus will come to you. That is when He will comfort you, when He will encourage you, and when He will show you His power. It doesn't mean all of your problems will be solved instantly. But you will see the reality of the true champion of all conflicts, the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes and He is strong like Beryl. He has a golden belt around His waist to let you know that He is ready for action. When you were about to undertake strenuous work or battle, you would get a belt and you would loop up your garment, your tunic, and you would tie it off with a belt so that you were ready for action. Jesus is ready here for action. He is powerful immovable like bronze, coming swift in judgment like the lightning. And he reminds us, through a messenger, 
Because it could be, again, still the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 10 and following, but I think there is a good case now to be made for Jesus, after having appeared, sending His messenger Gabriel to lean down and to pick up Daniel, someone He would be more familiar with, less awed by. And He describes for Daniel the big picture. We see it in verse 20. I return now to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. In that one sentence, the messenger of God describes 200 years of conflict that Israel will see, experience, and be affected by. It will be 200 years between the king of Persia and the king of Greece. If you think about that, from election to election doesn't really seem like so big of a deal, does it? If you think about that, what happened in the 50s really doesn't seem like so big of a deal, does it? Because God is in charge this whole time. He is completely behind the conflict. Because we see that here in verse 1 of chapter 11. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. You see, God is the one who sets all of this in motion. Darius didn't set this decree out on a whim, just like the Samaritans didn't act apart from the spiritual realm. Darius and the Israelites don't act apart from the spiritual realm. This is the power of God. Finally, we see the champion of history in the person of God. We see it in God presenting forgiveness before Daniel. The context here is completely redemptive. It reminds us of nothing more than the exodus from Israel. Even the clothing that is being worn by the figure, linen, reminds us of the priest and sacrifices. This is the person of God who tells us that He gives forgiveness, that He is faithful to His covenant. And He reminds us of the nature of this spiritual conflict. It's like a connect the dots through the Bible. You see, in Daniel chapter 10, the emphasis here is on the angelic realm and that spiritual battle. And then Paul in Ephesians 6 reminds us of the emphasis on us to be a part of the spiritual battle. That we need to be in the armor of God, fighting, but you see, the final nature of the spiritual conflict is found in another parallel passage. In Revelation chapter 12, where we read this. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. And the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them night and day before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. You see, that's the end of the spiritual battle. It is victory 
in Jesus by his blood. That is a victory that not only Daniel, but we share in, we long for, we'll see by God's grace.